Hello everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord, uh, the podcast for Sequard, the best source for online and offline news, reviews and previews of comic books. Read their articles, buy their books, watch their movies. And remember, we're on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. We do the heavy thinking so you don't have to. And as you probably already know, and if you don't, shame on you, I am Tom Shapira and with me as always... Hello. Gone, gone the form of me, rise the demon, Sean Edry. <sighs> yes. And... Well, usually we do a lot of introductions, but there's tons of stuff to talk about this so episode. much so much before we even reach the reviews or the previews for for the month right. of June so let's just jump straight into let, the let news. Me ask, was there a memo going out that it's like scandal week and nobody told me because everybody apparently decided to get in trouble over the past two weeks and I'm sitting here making notes and preparing to talk about it and it's just like is there something in the water what is going on okay um, let's start with I want to start with Batgirl. Okay. Here, here's a, an interesting little story that developed in some unexpected ways. So June is Joker variant cover month. Raphael Albuquerque, the artist on 8 and American Vampire, was commissioned to do a Joker variant for Batgirl number 41. This is a series that we've reviewed, uh, written by Cameron Stewart and Brendan Fletcher, art by Babs Tarr. Now, this is post-convergence, but it's still the same creative team. There yeah. hasn't been any changes there. Now, Albuquerque's cover is of Barbara Gordon with tears in her eyes, the Joker standing behind her, smearing lipstick on her mouth with one hand, while pointing a gun at her breast with the other. It did not go over well. It's uh, it's a very killing joke-inspired cover, because you do what you want with Barbara Gordon for most people. That's yeah. the story. It's like, whatever you want to do with Jean Grey, it's always the Phoenix. Whatever you want to do with Barbara Gordon, it's always the killing joke. It would have worked, this kind of cover could have worked with the Gail Simone run, which was intentionally a darker shade of mm-hmm. black, I guess you can say, because, you know, you remember that was the run that started with the issue of her having flashbacks, oh my god, she's pointing a gun at me, just like that time, right? But the new run is intentionally lighter, funner, it's supposed to be the poppy, upbeat bad girl, right? and putting that kind of cover and that kind of comic sense... The worst message possible. Well, that's that's the thing. So there were three points here that sort of caught my eye as it was unfolding in the blogosphere, so to speak. First of all, DC's official response made an, uh, sort of this vague reference to death threats. What they failed to mention was that the people getting the death threats weren't the creators. It was the people protesting the cover. So that didn't look good. Now, Albuquerque went on record as saying that this wasn't his original cover. DC asked him to make it more extreme. So that's already saying, you know, that there was some kind of interference here that didn't come from the artist. Now, he was the one who asked to withdraw the cover. And that was because Stuart, Tarr, and Fletcher all came out in opposition to the cover. Not just because it sends a different message, but because according to Stuart, it sends the opposite message. It would, reminded me so much of the situation with Milo Manara and Spider-Woman, where also you had a cover that was sending the message that was absolutely not the one you wanted. Antithetical to the type of book you're publishing. It's not right. like it's not like one of those baby covers which everybody gets is a joke. That's the opposite of a joke. Or so, the Harley Quinn covers, for example. Yeah. Now, Albuquerque is not to blame. He, he no. You know, he got a commission. He did his job. But you said it, and you're absolutely right. If you are asked to do a variant cover that involves the Joker and Batgirl, where else would you go besides the well, killing joke? Yeah. He said it, and I don't blame him at all. But I do think that there's something here that needs to be touched upon, which is, did you see Ray Dillon's response to this? Who's Ray Dillon? Ray Dillon is an artist for IDW, okay. and he drew this cover. 
He basically took the same pose and put Doomsday in the background and Superman in the foreground, and Superman is standing there with tears in his eyes while Doomsday is smearing blood on his mouth. You would never see DC put this cover forward, right? You would never, ever, ever, ever see Superman in a position like that. So the fact that they keep going back to this idea of victimhood specifically for female characters, even if there's a canonical precedent, even if the killing joke is a thing that is still informing Batgirl 20, 30, 40 years later, the fact that there was no one there to say, hang on, that doesn't really work, right? There's no... Nowhere to stop. And on the other hand, they were very quick to remove it when Albuquerque asked them to. So um, it's like someone's making the mess at DC and someone else is cleaning it up and they're constantly chasing each other. Well, you know, for their, you know, for their defense, you know, once they realized the doo-doo they did, they removed it. And people who are complaining about, well, it's hurting the freedom of speech that you removed the cover. It isn't. Even if it was some sort of grand artist- artistic statement, again, it's not. It's a variant cover. For a monthly comic book from DC Comics. It can't be a free speech issue for the simple, simple reason that Albuquerque asks to remove yeah, it. Yeah, you know, so. the people who actually are the artists on the book don't want it. Right. The guy who drew the cover is like, at best, it's, he's like, well, it's a job and it's worth it. Like, he got job. paid. What yeah, does he care? Yeah, it's a job that I didn't really want. Now, I think some people, I could actually imagine DC Comics doing a comic showcasing Superman or Batman in a position which would be very uncomfortable. I Not think, like that. I, I think back to John Byrne's Man of Steel, the ones with uh, the new the new god who was the Xenomezochist torturing Superman. Or Nightfall, the, right? Yeah. With Bane breaking his back. But those aren't... Yeah, it's, it's not, the, not sa- the same. It's not the same thing. And like, the, Dylan's... I mean, I encourage our listeners to absolutely Google Ray Dylan's image here. It's the, the, the composition of, you know, it, the combination of the tears and the fear in the expression and the... the the motion of like smearing something on their lips. Never, never would yeah, Superman be in that position. Now you could do bad girl with the Joker. It shouldn't be the only thing that ties these two characters together because right. he's a bad, he's a famous bad villain. She's a bad tertiary character, and she has beaten I think, him yeah, since the killing. Yeah, yeah. Joker. I think there was um, somebody put it online. I think it was Dave Stewart. I'm not sure. A variant on that cover, which was the Joker holding her with a toothbrush. And say, and the writing was brush your teeth harder. Right. It's, it's a jokier thing that would have worked. And there were other Joker covers for that same month that had sort of that jokey, funny element where, you know, you go into a store and you understand that it's a joke. If I didn't read Batgirl, if I didn't know anything about what's going on with that book right now and I saw this cover on the shelf, because that's what happens with variants, right? Yeah. You walk in and it's like, I would look at that and be like, uh, eh, that again, more of that. Yeah, and Stewart and Fletcher are not doing that, so I understand why they poor, were. Poor bad girl, that book just can't get a break. When Ugh. every every other month there's a problem with that book, a new controversy. Yeah, but they're trying. I mean, well, yeah, they're trying. This one was not the fault of the creative team. No, but I'm saying at all, it's like a doom magnet of a book. Yeah, I hope they get past it because it, the first arc concluded last week and it actually turned out pretty well. Okay. Now speaking of bad girl. A time-displaced Eric Larson came to us from the past, in 1994, to say the following, and I quote, I'm tired of the big two placating a vocal minority at the expense of the rest of the paying audience by making more practical women outfits. One of the examples that he was using was Batgirl as she currently appears. Now, I love 
that it was Eric Larson who said this. He, I think he was mostly referring to Wonder Woman's new design and then to Miss Marvel. That that was the two big examples he gave. I saw that he referenced Batgirl too, but that might have turned up later. Here's what I love about this situation, okay? Thank you so much. If this had been Mark Miller saying it, if it had been Grant Morrison, if it had been any other writer, I would have had more to to unpack. But the fact that it's Eric Larson, this so-called vocal minority that he's protesting has made sure that every single book is selling better than his. Spider-Gwen number one shipped 254,000 copies. Silk did 74,000. Thor did 70,000. And those are just the numbers that we know about. We don't even have figures for digital sales. Where is Savage Dragon on that list, right? Okay, see. Issue 200, the the big anniversary issue, sold 6,800 copies. And you know that if he was any other writer at any other company, that book would be at the very least in danger of cancellation. But he's Eric Larson, and he helped found Image, so he gets a seat at the table, and that's fine. But don't act like you understand current trends, like you know what people want I these think, days, because you clearly don't. I think there are two problems with what Eric Larson said beyond the fact that a lot of it is very dumb. One, <laughs> no, wait, one of the two, well, one, one problem is that really he's one of the old guards speaking to a new age, and the other is that he's speaking through Twitter. Now, Eric Larson just yesterday, I think, when we record this, not whenever you listen to it, mm-hmm. did an, a long interview on The Outhouse, which was one of the... He accepted the interview yeah, yeah, yes. the and, Outhouse? And they said before the interview, it's, thank you for accepting it from a, from a, from a source that criticized you and what and whatever you said okay. loudly. And when he actually spoke about it through, you know, words and not just, you know, the 140 characters quip, it didn't become smarter. It became a much... Became more understandable, and, I, and a lot of things. A lot of things. For instance, the Miss Marvel thing, mm-hmm. which people were very angry about him. But how you dare you criticize her? It must be, you know, you're crusading against a Muslim character. He was talking about Captain Marvel. He's not reading new comics, and he wasn't even aware at the time of Kamala Khan. Same he, principle, though. Even no. if he was talking about Carol Danvers, he's talking about the shift from the black leotard to yeah. the costume that she's wearing now. now. And he's calling that placating a vocal minority. No, no. And the other thing he said was, when I was saying a vocal minority, I now realize what it meant in that context. I wasn't referring to the female audience. Now, I don't know if he's, you know, just backpedaling. I'm willing to give him a bit of the benefit of the doubt because, again, it works better in the interview. It's a bigger problem... With comic discussion and discussion about culture in general, Twitter, and I've said it before, is a bad, bad platform for anything which is not, uh, I ate a sandwich, I ate a sandwich this morning, it was tasty. It reduces anything to a glib, to glib one-liners, to angry retorts, to, you said it, I hate you, you said it, I hate, Hmm. you can't. I completely disagree with that because Cameron Stewart gave Larson such a virtual pantsing through Twitter. And this was, again, like the fact that Eric Larson managed to sort of collect himself and offer not an apology, but sort of an explanation as to why he's actually right. And he's like, no, you guys just didn't understand what I said. No, he's not saying he, he didn't was understand. very clear. But the more he talked about it on Twitter, and granted, yes, Twitter has limitations, but again, Stewart's retort basically drove Larson, I mean, he deleted his Twitter. Which is what you do when you know you're losing and you don't have the balls to admit it. And then he came back to Twitter. And Larson's first interview, by the way, I mean, first of all, kudos for accepting an interview request from the outhouse because they have been critical of him. But his first interview beforehand, and the reason the outhouse sought him out was because 
his first interview to sort of explain what happened was, I think it's called Reaxin with a couple of X's. They're a pro Gamergate website, which is not okay, the place yeah. that you go to explain that you're not anti-female. Well, again, so and poor it's one, choices. And, yeah, and, it's poor choices, and I I don't know because it's one of those things. Is Art Larson a gamer? Is he even aware of these things? I could actually imagine lack of awareness doesn't excuse though making it reduce doubling down on your stupidity. Well, it reduces the problem. I mean, he was talking about the fact. What bothers him is that women are getting covered up in comics. That is what is annoying him. Yeah, and it's like, well, you. Eric Larson is a creator who produces a comic. And in fact, a lot of the responses, the initial responses to his comment was to put Savage Dragon in, quote unquote, less practical clothing. The results were hilarious, but it's like, who are you? Isn't Savage Dragon just a guy in jeans and a shirt most of the time? You can imagine what the responses were then when they put him in less practical outfits. Let's just say Wildstorm in the 90s would have been super excited. But who are you? To be making these comments. Eric Larson is not at the top of the comic book industry. No. Dictating trends and deciding what's popular. He's not in a position where he knows who these minorities are, who, whether they're vocal or not. He has this sort of... Out of it's like Chuck out. Austin used to talk about the seven deadly trolls, right? In his worldview, there were only ever seven people who were speaking out against him. And they were just taking on different uh, uh, handles and names to, to besmirch his unquestionable quality on all these different websites. And it's like, wake up. What the hell are you even talking about? You know, it's the the fact that he can't use Twitter to explain himself properly is because in that first interview, he just dug himself deeper. And without House, he was like, no, I didn't really mean any of that. Never mind. No, no, because no, he got no, caught. No, not I didn't mean it. He did not expect not, to get called out. No, no, That's no, 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 no. I, I disagree. It's not I didn't mean it. It's It's exactly what he meant. It's just... Without the having to communicate via one-liners, it becomes much more comprehensible. Now, I am still wrong, though. No, I disagree with Ari, with Larson's, you know, ideas about design. I think, you know, Miss Marvel's new design is better than the old design. Wonder Woman, I would agree with him. The new design is awful. Without, but, it's not. No, wait, wait. It's not just mm-hmm. about being covered up, though. That is a lot of his argument, and again, that's why I think it's false. Right. Like, what does he mean by more practical? Yeah. Now, more practical, that's a thing I hear enough from both sides of the argument about, well, you know, uh, Wonder Woman's custom design is now better because it's more practical that she's covered up. And when he said that more practical is something that is used wrongly, I agree because no superhero costume ever in the history of ever has been practical. Superman is not practical. Batman is not practical. None of them are practical. Utilitarian is practical and none of them are. They're eye-catching now. Changing it to be less embarrassingly sexist, that's great. Yes. But, but, but. That was why Stewart but, got into the discussion. Yeah, yeah. He said, I, des- I redesigned Batgirl's costume not to make it more practical, but just because, you know, it, it, it made more sense. Yeah, but, but again, it made more sense from a design standpoint. But saying it's a practical, nobody would go out and fight crime like this. We know that because we know how cops go out to fight crime. Right. I mean, what, did J.H. Williams not have Batwoman running around in high heels? Yeah. You know. Okay. Now, I'm just, it's just me being annoyed because I hear the word practical being thrown around in superhero customs and I'm like, none of, none of it is practical. What he meant was sexy. Yeah. That was what he meant. No. And yeah, that's, you can, and you can be sexy without being sexy. That's the whole Karen Gillan line, right? Right. Because, you know, talking about, well, now they're not, you know, sexy, it's false. All female superheroes in comic, all of them, 99.9 of them, even with better clothes and without the, uh, annoying boob holes and what have you are still designed to appear as power girl 
Yeah. Um. No. And there are still this, all of them are still designed to be sexy women. They are all still beautiful, yeah. beautiful women that you wouldn't see in real life. I mean, saying their superheroes, female superheroes are becoming unsexy for some reason, it's just stupid. This is still, a no, because his definition yeah. of sexiness Sexy. is, is ni- image 1994, yeah. right? Zealot with the two strings oh, yeah. and all yeah. that. That's his ver- version of sexy, and that's what he thinks people still want, right? What is his... He's phrasing it in the, se- in the sense that in his mind, the vast majority of people who are reading comics today still want that. And the market proves that it's he's wrong. wrong. Yeah. So, you know, screw you, Eric yeah, Larson. Uh, what do you know? Mr. Johnson, the world is changing and you don't notice it. Precisely. Now, third scandal. And this is the ugly one. Well, they're all ugly. It's just the one that people had problem to communicate on because it's someone they knew. Okay, so we'll be discussing the June solicitation shortly. But what happened was... um, Chris Sims from Comics Alliance and and the upcoming writer of X-Men 92 for Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. That's when it started. Uh, The June solicitations mentioned X-Men 92. This is a Secret Wars tie-in that Chris Sims is writing. That announcement set off a landmine. Because comics blogger Valerie Dorazzo went off on Twitter. She lambasted Marvel for hiring someone who had extensively bullied and harassed her when she was writing uh, for Marvel, I think specifically it was... She was writing Punisher 1. Punisher Max Butterfly, yeah. and Chris Sims just tortured her. I mean, there's no other way to put it. The account is pretty surprising all around, not just because Sims is well-known, but because he's close friends with people like Rachel Edidin and Laura Hudson, who would not tolerate that kind of behavior in any way. Now, the reaction to her comments was very interesting. Sims immediately apologized. He immediately put out this very, it seemed heartfelt, this mea culpa, saying that what he had done was indefensible and that he'd grown a lot since then and that he was truly sorry. And it could have ended there. Durazo chose not to accept his apology because it didn't undo what he did to her at the time, which is fair. But that, it could have stopped there. But then Comics Alliance had to put out the following statement arguing that the story was coming up again as a result of a conspiracy. So, someone was targeting Chris, not out of a sense of justice, but because they wanted to destroy his success. The campaign may also have been one of several efforts we're aware of to discredit Comics Alliance. These are not the tactics of progressives concerned about harassment in comics, but of agitators looking to tear down progressive voices, of which Chris is certainly one, using methods of harassment. In other words, they were framing it as a situation where Sims was also the victim. No. I I don't think it would have stopped anyway, even if we don't take the backhanded apology that they did. And by the way, since then, a few updates. Chris Sims have dropped out of Comics Lines. He took a leave of absence for a while. Mm-hmm. And Valerie Drazio has been driven out of Twitter. She deleted right. her account because she said she was bullied again by... Because, of course, having brought this story up, she reactivated all the old demons. Yeah. So that, that's not surprising. And I just... I, yeah. And there are so... A lot of people can't talk about it properly because the internet blogosphere of comics is a very small space and it preoccupied with people that know each other. But we don't know them, so we yeah. can't talk about no, them. No, well... <laughs> But, you know, if you don't, most of them, if they don't know Chris Sims personally or have talked to him on the Twitter or whatever, are friends with people who know Chris Sims. Mm-hmm. And so it's, 
It's very different for, from whenever, again, when Ari Klashen said stuff like that, you know, he was lambasted immediately by all of these people. When Chris Sims said it, it's like, well, yeah, what he did was very problematic, but dot, dot, dot. I think the difference there is that Larson has been using the same line and shows no evidence of changing. What, well, what Chris Sims, Sims is saying, Sims has apologized, but, you know, it's he apologized. It's not just that he's apologized, it's that in the time since then, this was 2004-2005, I think. No, no, no. No, no, when 2007, did this 2010. 7 to 10. Okay. It's not in, like millennia ago. No, but in the time since then, he has participated in certain projects that, I mean, Comics Alliance has this running feature of Hire This Woman. Yeah. They do make a lot of effort to be progressive in that way. My problem was that they tried to blame, basically, those who sit above ah. in shadow and saying this was all... A conspiracy. It's like, no, Sims said these things. He owned them. Where were these people in 2007 when he was harassing her is what I want to know. Right? Like, nobody spoke up against him back then. No, and it's very odd because I went back and I read some of Sims' review of Val's stuff. Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of his reviews. Not all of the communication because apparently some of it was, you know, shooting back from other blogs. And other people were involved. And a lot of it's probably been deleted. And other people have been involved in this discussion. Of course. At the time, I mean. And... His reviews at the time were mean-spirited, yes, but not more mean-spirited than anything else he, he was doing at the time and he's doing now. Because if you're just saying, well, his reviews were overtly negative, it's no difference than any of the reviews he has done since to Mark Miller's work, Kevin Smith's work, Jeff Jones' work. They were all... But by his own admission, yeah. with her, he made it personal. Yeah, and he the went thing after is, her Yeah, and, I, and I, I can't... The thing is, I can't find the evidence. I, my Google flu is not strong enough. Right. And when you do find they're talking, they're, you know, uh, the Wayback Machine finds Chris and Valerie mentioning each other, they were both equally personally vicious. And I don't know. I assume that there are things that I can't find because she's suffering a PTSD. You know, there's something there which right. is more than I don't like your work, your work sucks. Right. Which they're both said to one another... And other people she said she claims to that he led basically a campaign a of harassment, yeah. and that other people made it worse. And which is which I can believe because yeah. that's how things and, work. And even then, his claims of you know mea culpa, he's never mentioning I led a campaign. He said people that were following me at the time mm-hmm. took the lead from me. Right. I and, and she said in response to that that it, the, one of the reasons she didn't accept his apology wasn't just because the damage was done, but because. He only apologized because she called him out. It's not like when yeah. Marvel announced it, he suddenly decided of his own initiative to say, by the way, I did this thing. I'm very ashamed of it. It's like, no, you did this in specific response to her seeing this announcement and going after Marvel, whose response was, you know, that sucks, but we're not kicking him off the book. Because it's been solicited. It's, it's done there. It's done. And I mean, we hire Brian Wood, so why shouldn't we hire Chris Sims? We hire Mark Miller. Why should we hire Chris? Well, I mean, at least Mark Miller has never. Yeah, his his no. problems come through in his work, not in his and but, personal life. But you know, Sims, you know, problem Sims con- the Sims controversy brings out a lot of problems yeah. with the blogosphere, with the comic review scene, because you have to ask yourself when is reviewing someone viciously becomes a personal attack? How many? What's 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 the crossing line? It's easy though. That's an easy question to answer. I, when you stop talking about the work and you start talking about the person, which Lord knows I have crossed that line. Yeah. When we, I go after Jonathan Hickman or Mark Miller, you know that I'm talking about the person and not about the work. Yes. Yeah, so. But on the other hand, I'm not coming at them from a position of 
I mean, the, the things that he said about her were very, very calculated and very, very vicious. And uh, it's not even that that bothers but me. Like, it's the fact that, for example, this is still a thing. Like, her Twitter account, after she brought this whole thing up, was basically carpet bombed. And after he said, please don't, don't right, go after. after everyone said it. Everyone, every blogger who took part in this discussion and said whatever it was they said, whether it was in support of him or whether it was neutral or whether it was against him, everyone who said, said do not start harassing Dorazio again. You don't need that. It's unnecessary. And they did it anyway. anyway. And you know what? If you grew up reading comics like I did, and if you were born in the States in the early to mid 80s, you know good and damn well that there is a certain stereotype of a comic book reader. You see him on The Simpsons. You see him with Kevin Smith. You see him in The Big Bang Theory. Every single ugly, nasty stereotype that we have had to put up with for decades. You know, the basement-dwelling, Cheeto-sniffing, Mountain Dew-slurping cartoon who's petrified of women. Damn it, you people are proving those things true. Why start harassing her again? Why prove... That misogyny is a thing. If you are well, so because desperate. Because it is a thing. Because it is a thing. But th- these people who are always protesting about social justice warriors and you shouldn't bring that up and there's no such thing as sexism in comics. Why do you have to constantly prove that this is still an issue? Why can you not just let it die? There was no reason to go after Dorazio. No. She was not criticizing Comics Alliance except for their whole conspiracy angle. She was not asking that Kristen, she didn't even ask that since be removed from the book. Well, she just said, hey, Marvel, it's kind of screwed that you hired him knowing what he did. Because they came to her when she was writing Punisher Max and said, be prepared. It's coming. And So they knew. And I, the problem is so much of this stuff is completely unknown. There's one line which she mentioned that she told her in an online discussion, uh, which is, are you going to cry about a Ugh. girl? And in, comic, in his, his version is, are you going to cry about a Val? Right. And I don't know why... She said the, little girl. Yeah, and so. I don't know why these two words, little girl, instead of I'm talking to you, Val, mm-hmm. it's a world of difference. Of between, course it is. And between somebody who's being completely sexist, jerk, uh, scumbag, to someone who's having a very angry discussion, it's like, you know, uh, you're wrong, little boy, or, uh, instead of you're wrong, Sean. And what is the truth? I have no idea, and at this point, it doesn't really matter because I mean, it, it doesn't. Yeah, matter. yeah. But the he, thing is, because he admitted he did wrong, right. and he's and he's leaving. And to tell the truth, I think I I've always had a bit of not always in the last few years I've had a bit of a problem with Chris Sims writing on Comics Lance because he's so deep in the industry now. He's been writing for Image, he's been mm-hmm. writing for Owning, and you know, writing for Marvel Comics while still being a reviewer of of Marvel Comics yes. on a major website is a problem. It's like. You you can't do both. Well, not any more than Douglas Wolf writing uh, Judge Shred and then he's still uh, critiquing. Yeah, but, you know, know, that was one thing. And Chris Sims never hid the fact that he was wanting to break into comics as a writer. Right. And now that he succeeded, he's like, well, yeah, you're at Marvel now. You probably shouldn't be at a site that reviews Marvel. Because now whenever I read you reviewing a Marvel comic positively, I'm thinking... Right. There's can, going can to be you... questions of ethics regardless. Yes, yes. So um, ma- maybe it's... Maybe it's for the best for Chris Sims to take a break anyway. The conclusion that I come to, though, I do want to say sort of in general, that I I do believe in the principle of, you know, growth, learning from your mistakes, doing this thing, and then being genuinely sorry about it, and trying to move on from there. That was the spirit of what he was talking about. Whether or not I believe it, 
is problematic simply because he, he waited, didn't offer this. Yeah, he waited until it blew he up in his face. He waited for her to come after him. Yeah. And he must have known, because, you know, writing X-Men is a big deal. And Marvel was not going to hide it. So he re- he probably should have taken the opportunity to step up and say, he by should, the way... He should have done it years ago. Yeah. Once he had his so-called growth. Yeah. So, like, I accept the possibility that maybe yeah. he's learned from his mistakes, but... This was all handled poorly. Yeah. From Sims to Comics Alliance to everyone who who went after Dorazio again. And that is the end of the scandals. Okay, we'll do a quick run on the... Positive news. Yeah, uh, we'll start with movie news. Yes. Quickly, uh, we might soon see, we'll probably soon see an I Kill Giants film uh, based on the comic by Joe Kelly and J.M. Ken Nimura about a teenage girl who is convinced that giants exist in this world and it's her role to fight them. It's a phenomenal graphic novel. I love it, it, it was, so much. It was a very good comic. Absolutely. And pr- the producer... Chris Columbus is directing. No, producing. Oh, producing. Producing. Okay. Chris Columbus of Harry Potter fame? It was fame. It, it, yeah, it was fame. It was famously bad in my opinion, but okay. <laughs> anyway, he's producing. He's okay. not directing, because thank God, because he hasn't done a good movie since the mid-90s, I think. Okay. And uh, the director is one, Andrus Walters, who did nothing aside from a short film called Helium, but then again, that film just won an Oscar for Best Short. So oh, okay. ma- maybe there's something there. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, is I Kill Giants the first major image book that's been translated to film? Uh, I know that. I mean, in the '90s, there was Spawn and all that, but I mean, in terms of the isolated individual self-contained projects, I, I can't think I'm of anything sure. else. I mean, you know, Powers is a TV show, and that started at Image, so yeah. technically. Yeah. But I can't wait for this. Yeah, is it live action or animated? Uh, it appears to be a live action live thing. Action. Which okay. is weird because that's the design sense of Jay of JM Candy Mora is, you know unique. unique. Yeah. It's <laughs> uniquely animated. Um, okay. Uh you wanted to mention Oni? Oni Press has announced the start of an open submission policy starting in May. Now I think they're the only major publisher that actually has that initiative at the moment. As far as I know, uh image boom. IDW, they're not accepting open submissions. Technically, 2000 AD, but, you know, their terms are very limited. Right. It's like, you have to send it in a closed envelope to mm-hmm. our office, and it has to be a four-page story for Fog's Future Shock only, and if the stars are right, maybe mm-hmm. we'll open it. Maybe, if you sacrifice a goat or a snake to Alan Moore. But under this policy, any writer, artist, cartoonist, or colorist looking to publish their work with Oni can submit their portfolio to the editorial team. Disclosure. I'm thinking of trying this. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, listen. Then again, if you are, if you are awarded the title after the discussion we just had, you'll have to quit I'll this morgue. You'll have to quit from this morgue's board. Yes. I think we'll be okay. But, uh, how often do we actually review Oni Press anyway? <laughs> but I think that this seems like the next natural step for looking outside the existing industry for talent. We've credited Boom before, and IDW to a lesser extent, for not necessarily sticking with the people we already know are known quantities. And this just seems like the natural extension. Granted, when you open your doors like that, you're going to get a lot of crap, right? This is Sturgeon's Law their lecture, effect. Their lectures are going to work extra time, you know, digging through material. I hope they are paying their editors... Over time and a half, because wow. Editors, but I mean, but oh, you'll find oh, oh. like that one. Some unpaid intern is going to get this position. Oh, He's going to drown under a sea of emails. Okay, but I mean, look, it's like fan fiction. 
Yeah. You know, 95% of it is crap. But if you're lucky and if you know what you're looking for, you can find that one story that's a gem and publish it. And why not? You know, that's a great way to do things. Okay. Uh, we'll go over solicits. Previews! Quickly. Quickly. Yes. Do we want to talk about anything in Marvel which is deep into the Secret Wars nonsense? Yes. Because okay. I've had a change of, well, I say a change of heart. You okay. saw some things that lit up your inner fire. I, my instincts are screaming at me. And I said this last month. I said, as far as I'm concerned, Secret Wars, I don't acknowledge it. I refuse to look at anything related to it. No, 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 no. Even though my instincts are screaming at me to stay away, some of the titles that Marvel has solicited as Secret Wars tie-ins are very, very tempting to me. Part of the problem is that I can't make any sense of the different banners and the sub-events and last days, Battle Worlds, War Zones. I don't even know what any of that means. Miss Marvel got roped into the this. The Battle which, War. Oof, the War know. Battles. The War Battles. Some of these spin-offs are tempting. For example, Noelle Stevenson and Sanford Green, Runaways number one. Now, that's not a name to be used lightly, because this is a series that basically defeated everyone besides yeah. its creator. J- just, Brian K. Vaughn was basically the only one who managed to do it right, and it's not like they didn't try, you know. Just Sweden failed. Yeah. Catherine Imminent failed. failed. Dennis Hopeless failed. Terry Moore. Terry Moore failed. These were These people. are high, you know, it's like the best of the best, and yeah. none of them. It is a book that has defeated every creator that came after and, it. And because I think Runaways wasn't so much of a long-term concept as much as it was just the story. It's like... Yeah. And Vaughn's run ends on a very definitive point. Yeah, and, and to... it's like nobody ever brought back Hitman from DC because, you know, Garth Ennis did his story, 60-odd yeah. issues, and it was done with. There was no point in bringing it back, but Marvel being Marvel... Can't let things go to rest. Well, the the interesting thing here is that it has nothing to do with the runaways yeah, as we know them so far. It's the premise is a group of teens who are running away from a school when they find out their headmaster is a supervillain, and it's Noel Stevenson who I've enjoyed, even though I have reservations about Lumberjanes. What concerns me, though, and this is actually something that's going to bother me a lot about all of these Secret Wars tie-ins is the question of whether or not they're complete stories in themselves. What I do not want to see is, uh, like, the end of the Runaways miniseries, whatever this is, saying, to be concluded in Secret Wars number 8. That would make me see red. And I don't know if that's going to happen. Like, there hasn't been any discussion about what these tie-ins signify. It's like, you remember with House of M, right? All of those sub-series and miniseries, they all... Started a story and then said, well, the ending will be in House of M. And I don't want to read House of M. And then House of M didn't actually end. Uh, Somebody said, poof, you know. So other, other, uh, attempting series. Uh, Thor's, I think. I wasn't really into that, but, you know. Okay, Thor's by Jason Aaron, Chris Pratt, which is a good creative team. Mm -hmm. And it's a Thor team up book, you know, the Thor core or what have you. (laughs) The Thor core <laughs> saying it hurts my mouth. Oh man. Which is, uh, regular, uh, the current Thor, uh, the old future king Thor, mm. and, uh, the Odin son one-arm Thor, and- Beta Ray Bill's probably gonna pop up. And if the frog is not there, I'll be very cross. Mm. I'll be very cross indeed. So and, there's the, that. and they're multiverse cops. Mm. Whatever. Whatever. Similarly, uh, Ghost Racers number one, Felipe Smith and Juan Gideon, like Thor's, you know, it seems kind of weird to have all of these 
people in the same Especially place. since Jason Aaron did uh, multiple Ghost Riders in his Ghost Rider run. Yeah. So And you know what the problem is? We'll, we'll be talking about Ghost Rider. Well, they're all flaming skulls. It's going to be hard to different between <laughs> them. It's a flaming skull in a, in black leather. That's it. Yeah. The, one of the, I mean, I'm enjoying the current Thor that Jason Aaron is writing, but it is impossible to escape the criticism that so long as Odin's son is running around, it's not really her story. And like here also with Ghost Racers, dropping all of the Ghost Riders in sort of dilutes from the new one that you're trying to promote. Yeah. So there's that. Here's another one that sort of made me go, huh? Weird World. Jason Aaron and Michael Del Mundo, formerly of Electra. Like Runaways, this is a series that I would have jumped on sight unseen outside the context of Secret Wars. Because it's another attempt to do swords and sorcery, which, to be absolutely fair, this is something that Marvel used to do. They used to have all that yeah. Kulan, Gath, Conan... Yeah, the 70s black and white yeah, magazine market. You know, it, it used to be possible. And it's really fallen to the wayside. Even Doctor Strange isn't prominent I mean, yeah. in, in Marvel today. So I do want to believe that with Jason Aaron especially writing it, it would be interesting. But it's that damn Battle World connect- connection that keeps... I don't want to. I don't want to. Look at all of every time there's another, uh, you know, Armor Wars, Future Imperfect, Years of Future Past, Korvac, Old Man Logan, Extinction Agenda. It's just, it's too Too much. much. Uh, Age of Ultron versus Marvel Zombies and Marvel Zombies. Why do we need both? Age of Ultron versus Marvel Zombies versus Marvel Zombies. Uh, Shall we move on to DC? There is one other thing though. And this, again, Temptation. E for Extinction number one. Chris Burnham. Writing, not drawing. Writing, and Ramon Villalobos drawing. Burnham, you said it, has been sort of co-writing with uh, Morrison. Morrison on his final... He's not, you know, he's not... Yes, he's not credited as a co-writer, but you can... You can definitely see that these visuals guide the story as much as the writing on Nameless mm. and on Ben Incorporated. And E for Extinction is a name that carries significant weight. Now, it's a, important. It's not the actual X for Extinction storyline because that storyline was basically, no, uh, you know, all the mutants in Genosha died. That was right. it. This is the end of the Morrison run with the future in which the mutants have won. Right. Speaking of which, no X-Men titles solicited for June at all. Well, except for that one. And there was one other title that I found interesting. Mm-hmm. Groot number one. Jeff Loveness and Brian Kessinger. The circle is now complete. The Last Guardian has his own. No, 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 no. Because you see, poor old uh, the destroyer. Oh, Drax doesn't have a solo title yet. I didn't even realize that. The the last time he had one was a miniseries before the whole annihilation thing, and that's like ten years now. Okay. So you know, poor Drax is like. You know, the tree's got his book, and the <laughs> raccoon, and Star-Lord, and, and Angela is gonna have one soon, and Gamora, and, and he's sitting there in the corner. Yeah. While Groot is dancing in the background. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, now, Jeff Loveness is best known for his work on Jimmy Kimmel Live, so they're clearly trying for another Elliot Kalan success story, well, and I hope it works. Now, Elliot Kalan's success story in our eyes, but in nobody else's, because that book is gone. You know, Wolverine and the X-Men is done in six issues, and... He's not coming back. Well, it was fun while it Well, lasted. yeah. I'm, I'm kind of interested about Captain Marvel and the Carol Corps by mm. Kelly Sue DeConnick and Kelly Thompson together with okay. David Lopez on art simply because once you're bringing in the co-writer on a major book, well, 
and Marvel want Captain Marvel to be a major book, if nothing else, mm-hmm. it sort of signifies a transition. It's like when Matt Fraction was running to Iron Fist alongside Ed Brubaker, it's like, yes, you're bringing him now to ease him into the shoes. So does that mean that Kelly Sue DeConnick is leaving her signal, mar- her sole Marvel book, her feature Marvel book? Because I, I wish think I could be more troubled. Because by that. no, no, I'm, I'm not troubled. I'm not. I'm not. We're I both mean, not huge Kelly Sue DeConnick fans. Yeah, I think she, know. she, she's okay, but she's not. She never blew my mind out. Now it could do better. Yeah, and who knows? Yes, and you know, maybe, maybe it's her time to go away simply because we. She has her image books. She now has a production company with Matt Fraction. So obviously, mm-hmm. that's that's going to bring her more fame, more money, and more projects that she can actually control and not. Be under the whim of the big company. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Carol Danvers' reboot has been a success. This yes. has been, and in fact, once she makes it to her film, that will be it. Yeah. You know, that will crystallize her in the Marvel fan. Hopefully. Well, assuming yeah. that the movie's a success. Yeah. So DC. Okay. It's, it's DC. been a long time since I've been more interested in DC solicits than Marvel solicits, and this is that <laughs> month. It, it's funny how it flipped. Last yeah. time we were like conversions, moving on, and now it's Secret Wars, moving on, and DC is starting to have their new number though, one. Though their first big number one is not something that I'm looking forward to. Justice League of America number one, written and drawn by Brian Hitch. No, thank you. I'm good. No. <laughs> uh, you know, I really like Branich as an artist at the time, and the time was when Ultimates One came out. Yeah, his two issues that he did on Age of Ultron were bad, bad, bad work, and then he did this image book that left like five issues, Real Heroes, and nobody read it. It's amazing. This guy went from being the biggest artist superstar in comics, a guy, a guy who Marvel would wait a year for a single page of his art before mm-hmm. they dare publish anything to. Who? Who? Who is this person? Yeah, and now DC is saying, well, no, 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 he's a big name again, you know, he's, he's launching their big superhero title. Six dollars, fifty-six pages. No, thank you. A huge fallout because, you know, that's, that's something that DC loves, the big fallout pages. No. Absolutely uh, not. Uh, well, interesting spin-off. Black Canary number one, Brendan Fletcher and Annie Wu. Black Canary in a rock band. That's new. Can we please stop with the rock bands? Why? I don't know. Rock bands are cool. Anyway, but you, didn't you, you didn't enjoy Fletcher's recent work in Gotham Academy, right? That was him. No, Gotham Academy is Becky Cloonan and Carl Kressel. Wasn't he writing it with Becky Cloonan? Maybe. maybe I'm wrong. He's maybe. co-writing Batgirl. Though. Ah, oh, so, so maybe, maybe I'm confused. So maybe I'm confused. Okay. I mean, well, he, he might have had some input on Gotham Academy too. I mean, they're not that different in terms of books. Yeah. But, um, I'm, you know, this is the sort of number one that I'm not committing to in advance, but I'll, I'll take a look at it. Um, Midnighter number one mm. by Steve Orlando, Tartan cover by ACO. And I didn't even look. Yeah, I, I assume it's, it's like one of these, uh, corporation. Is that TBA's twin brother? No, 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 no. I think it's like one of those mini corporations, like Guru Hero Studios, which is two people. Oh, okay. So I, so, but I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a pen name. It's like uh that Japanese artist O oh, Great. <laughs> That's his pen name, O oh, Great. And you, Oh Killstrike. Yes. And um it's a spin-off from Grayson, which we both enjoy. Yes. And you know, Midnighter didn't have a success with the solo series last time around. It was Girth Ennis doing uh I'm Girth Ennis and I'm forced to write a superhero. I'll do it as quietly as I can. No no, it wasn't a hateful comic like a lot oh, of it was. No, no, no. It was just basically, you know, he punches people. That's it. Yeah. Um, 
It but, does read like this is meant to be a sort of replacement for Batwoman in that he will be the most prominent solo LGBT character because there is no Batwoman going right after the convergence. And speaking of Grayson, mm-hmm. Tom King is now writing The Omega Men. The... What is the... Can someone explain to me what this book is? Because the solicitation text did no, not... Yeah, it's, it's basically The Omega Men are back and forgetting to say that most Where people... Where were they? Yeah, most people don't know. The Omega Men are like one of those... Uh, it's like Guardians of the Galaxy for the DC Universe. It's oh. Legion of Superheroes in the current day. You know, like far future, far space oh. future superheroes. They had a few okay. books in the past, but Robin Morrison, I think, wrote the latest incarnation, but mm. nobody read it. Oh. Okay. But, you know, we, we enjoy Tom King. We do. I don't know inter- if it, I would jump in for this one because they're talking about, like... Well, it's important to mention, unlike Marvel, in which every single book is minimum $4, most of them are 5 these are all $3 books, yeah. first issues, except for the Justice League one, which is, like it or hate it, at least 56 pages, so they're not shorting you on, mm. on the, you know, page for a dollar. Okay. Uh, Constantine the Hellblazer number one, uh, Ming Doyle and Riley Rosmo. I would only be interested in this if it weren't a DCU title, but I don't even know what the continuity is anymore. I, is he still in the Justice League? No, no. I don't I, even know. Like, I, what does this reboot mean? Because now they're giving him back the Hellblazer title. Does that mean that he's going back to his own corner? Of the they're DC? saying DC is foremost a call detective, so they're saying DC, not Vertigo. That would have been true. Of yeah, Vertigo yeah, too, yeah. But though. no, but they would at the Vertigo time they wouldn't say DC. They would simply say a call detective. So they're keeping know. him in universe. I need it's to that, hear more about this before I can do it. I've never read anything that Mick Doyle wrote. I've read. I you know her art's good. We we reviewed the kitchen. Oh right, right. See, yeah. I completely forgot. And we, it was okay. Yeah, I mean. Serviceable. Yeah. Which when you're right. Then again, she said she wanted to take his coat away in pre-interviews, and I'm like, you can't do that. Oh, he's ha- listen. Would you wear the same coat for thirty years? Yeah. At this Gross. point, it, no. I'm sorry. At this point, that <laughs> coat is that coat is his costume. It's like saying, "Well, I'm changing Superman's costume." Speaking of which, oh no. <laughs> oh, well, no. we we've talked about the Superman costume. We have, but every time I look at it, I'm no, I'm but sort Super- of shocked all over. But it Superman again. forty-one, which is still drawn by John Romita Jr., not doing his best work, I'm afraid, mm. is written by Guan Lan Yong. Mm-hmm. I hope I pronounced it right. Who did uh, Boxer Sensates, American Born Chinese? Yes, that's an interesting pick. The fact that he took it is in itself interesting because he's not the kind of guy who needs to beg for work from the big two because no, his he's graphic been, novels... You he's know, been writing Avatar The Last Airbender tie-ins. Yeah, yeah. His and graphic novels are very successful, both mm-hmm. in criticism and in sales. So this is the one I'm most curious about from all of the books here. It is interesting, yeah. right? Like This is a, a person who's most identified, I think, as more of a biographical or autobiographical or realistic or historical drama writer. And to accept of all the superheroes you could have picked for your first major thing, you go with Superman, who is a character that I think resists changes to his status quo a lot more than most superheroes. Uh, and that, that's what makes it interesting. Now, it was, the yeah. John Romita Jr. art, I could do without. I, I like John Romita Jr. in principle, but his work on Superman has been sloppy as hell. Sketchy, yeah. Yeah. So, this is a bit of... I'm not entirely sure what to do with this news. Secret 6 is apparently way, way, way behind schedule. Oh, yeah. Issue 3 is solicited for June, and we reviewed issue 1 months ago, so I don't even know what's... Like, I still want to read the first arc, and I've been realizing, like, well, where's... 
Where's the rest of it? It's right behind Sandman Overture. Wow. I well, mean, see, non-player number two is coming out this year. Oh, we're going to talk about yeah. that. Okay. But, uh, um, I, I don't, I mean, there, there haven't been any discussions as to what's causing the delays. It's either Simone or the artist, but wow, guys, get it together. Um, shall we mention, uh, well, I should probably mention because I'm a fan of his. Forever. Mm. Section 8 by uh, Garth Ennis and John McRae. It's the yes. creative team beyond Hitman doing a continuation slash spin-off about the group of comedic superheroes. You bumblers. were befuddled when that was announced. Uh, see, and again, <laughs> here's so, the thing. so random. As, as far as I'm concerned, Hitman is the best ongoing series that has ever been published. Not the best comic ever. Not the best, you know, graphic novel as okay. far as an ongoing series, Hickman, uh, Anison McRae's Hitman for me is perfect. Okay. And I'm not sure I want to see the spinoff now. Now, granted, his, uh, Justice League Hitman, uh, two issue miniseries, which came out, I bet you, three or four years ago, was just as good as the original series. Okay. But this is intentionally comedic over the top, Garth Ennis, and that Hitman was more of a serious dramatic, uh, Ennis, which I prefer. Okay. I'm game simply because of, again, it's my favorite creative team on one of my favorite titles, but reserve, reserved. Is like. this a miniseries? Yes, or yes, it's five issues. Five That's issues. the thing. A lot of the number ones, when DC first put out this announcement, they neglected to mention that a great many number of the titles that they had announced were in fact miniseries. And that made me wonder, well, what are they going to do when the miniseries run out? See, like, like, for example, the 12 issue limited Prez. Oh God! I By Mark wait. Russell and Bell Calabro. Cannot wait to read Prez. That. That's random. You want to talk random, right? That, uh, it's like Prez? one step up from Brother Power, the Geek. What? And it's a she. Meet Beth Ross, the first teenage president of the United States. I uh, what? I am more than willing. To uh, yes, that. Th- that's like whoa. Uh, I mean, we mentioned this when we talked about them last time. Like they. Good on them for making these decisions, but now, especially when I'm hearing that they're miniseries, it's like, well, these miniseries will all run out at the same time because they're all five issues no, or six like, issues. No. Okay, no, like, except Prez for Prez. Well, yeah, except for Prez, but you know, the majority of them. So, what do they have? Are they preparing like another wave after that? And well, maybe that's the way to go. Hopefully, with if it succeeds, yes. I mean, that might be you know just series of miniseries. I don't know. Uh, image. Image. Uh, I, 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 I want that one. I want to start with that one. You know, okay. I've been waiting for it. I'm take sorry. It, take it. Go uh, for it. Eight House, yes. Arclight number one, story by Brendan Graham, odd by Marion Churchland. Uh, it's the first of the three interconnected, uh, fantasy slash science fiction series by Brendan Graham and a host of writers and artists. It's the one written by Graham himself. Brendan Graham, of course, King City, Prophet. Marion Churchland, you probably know if you know her from her work on Elephant Man, which Richard Sarking, which in my opinion wasn't her best work. Her best work is either her online blogging, which she does beautiful illustrations, like ridiculously gorgeous, or her graphic novel that she wrote and drew Beast from 2009. Again, beautiful work and strange fantasy is a thing that Graham does best. So I'm there. I am so damn excited yeah. for this. Yes. I want it to work. Uh, I want all of Eight House. I'm sure it will work because be Brandon Graham has, has never failed me. Oh, I cannot wait. Okay. So there's a one shot called The Covenant. 
Oh, already even laugh, even laugh, it's okay. Written by Rob Liefeld, art by Matt Horak. Whoever he is. This is why I'm an atheist. Okay? If God existed, you know he'd smite Rob Liefeld's blasphemous ass after zombie Jesus. And the fact that he's doing the covenant. Uh. Tell them what it's about. <laughs> Tell them what it's about. In ancient times, there was no weapon more devastating than the Ark of the Covenant, containing a power that collapsed enemy nations and destroyed hostile invaders. Blah, blah, blah. And then uh, it's an untold tale of the Bible that shifted the balance of power in history. Not a hoax. Not an imaginary story. You know what? I hate those people, but can someone call the Westboro Baptist Church and just (laughs) sort of like send them to Rob Liefeld and let them like... Please, please, Conservapedia. Conservapedia will be all over this one. (laughs) It's it's a continuation for their you know conservative Bible project. Oh my! Are you kidding? Why is Rob Liefeld on this Bible kick all of a sudden? Because this is not the first time that he's done this. And well, the, mm, I don't know. Rob mm, Liefeld, mm. you know, he's resting on his laurels. You know, he has people working on his books, giving him money. The Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> uh, I cannot. I mean, this seems like the sort of comic that I would want to review for the kicks because I yeah. know I'd be laughing. Yeah, see, I'm not paying for all that. Day. I'm not paying for this. Now, oh, we talked about it briefly. Mm-hmm. Non-player number two, okay. written and drawn by Nate Simpson. Give us the background here because I, I actually don't know be- what this be- is. Because non-player number one came out years ago, like I think 2011 or something like that. Okay. And it was very, I haven't read it. It's a virtual reality type of story and it was, accepted as the next big thing you know mm. people said that nate simpson is the greatest artist since mobius mm. and i think mobius said it about nate simpson so you know oh. and he said well i don't know when it'll come out it'll be you know bi-monthly tri-monthly i'm i'm not i'm not committed to a timeline everybody said okay you know he, was, image didn't commit him to a timeline no because it's it was you know spectacularly well received okay. it was supposed to be the next big thing and then, I've never even heard of this. And see, and then you know, stuff just kept on happening. He kept being delayed. I think he broke his arm at one point. <laughs> and now, you know, years later, he's back for issue number two. I like which, that the solicitation starts with this. So the sold out series. <laughs> you need to have more than one issue to be a series. I'm just saying. And he thinks he anticipated that the series, the whole seven issues, will be completed sometime around. 2020. I'll have my grandchildren pick up the last issue. What? 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 <laughs> At least you know he's being realistic about it. It's not like I'll be finished by 2016. No, he'll he's not. It, you know, if Image were not having so many other successful titles that were coming out on a regular basis, I would understand. But here it's like, well, if non-players not coming out, I know that I can find some other good stuff. I don't need this. A couple of series are ending. Yeah. So Skull Kickers is ending. Alex and Ada. With issue 100. Which is actually issue 31, but you know, Jim Zab likes to. You know, they can do it, so can I. He's right, sure. Uh, Alex and Ada is ending, which I've been enjoying, but you know, it's not one of Image's bigger uh, titles. And we weep, we cry, but the truth is out there. Zero is ending. With issue 18. With the one word solicitation, surrender. Um, well, we, okay, we were concerned that Cote might be burning himself out because he has three other titles that are out in June. So I guess, maybe not. 
Yeah, well, it's okay. Like if he, you know, we're losing Zero and we're losing Secret Avengers, but he has the surface, he has material, and, and he has Dead Drop for Valiant. Yeah. So and Dead Drop okay. is a baby. It's a four yeah. issue. So all right, he's maintaining a certain now, level. I of... have two. Pro- the two problems that I have: a, the art on this issue is by Tulalote, which she's yeah. expressive, but she's not the clearest of storytellers. I think. Is this the first time she's been drawing Zero though? She's uh, coming in only for the last issue. That's I don't. Unusual. I don't know. No. Well, every issue at zero had a different artist. You know, it's right. That it's a rotating artist book. Okay. So I'm not sure. It depends on what he's doing for the conclusion. Yeah, because uh, you're reading it in bulk, right? I'm yeah. reading it in per issues, and mm-hmm. issue 15 was a major departure from the straight ahead. Don't almost straight. I'm don't not spoiling. I'm I haven't saying read it, yet. it was a major departure. It was okay. way, way out there. So I'm kind of concerned that these. Finish his Evangelion. He's doing his end of Evangelion. Oh, the Gainax ending. I'm 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 kind of afraid it's Ooh. going there, but we'll see. We'll see if someone can like can make it work. I think it's Alice Scott. I've never seen Alice Scott finish something, so that's an well, interesting well, question. Like, how does he do with conclusions? So we'll see. We talked last time about sticking the ending, and, and you the have other to do thing it. that uh, he's apparently said that Zero might continue in another medium. Maybe there'll be hmm. a novel or a TV show. Maybe he's Greg Rocking it, like Queen and Country, the sequel books. I could read a novel. Yeah. That's your own. Sure. I, I would love to see what Alice Scott does as a, does as a book writer. I hope he does I'm it curious. forward. Yeah. Okay. Dark uh, Horse had a few interesting releases. Uh, Jeff Lemire and Dean Ormston, recently of Bodies, are releasing Black Hammer number one. It seems to be a take on Kingdom Come, but with Golden Age superheroes? It's about a bunch of superheroes stuck in a, the Black Hammer farm, which is Basically, an out-of-continuity retirement home for superheroes, and they can't leave. Hmm. Jeff Meyer is very busy right now, right? He's doing yeah, this, he's oh, doing yeah. Descender, he's doing Hawkeye. He's, he's doing, doing the graphic novel with Scott Snyder. He's doing the Valiant uh, Bloodshed Reborn. Mm-hmm. Busy, busy, busy. Good for him. Well, uh, hopefully, oh, again... Oh, Hawkeye, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, hopefully, not overextending, not to Colin Bunn, Charles Soleil levels. Well, some people can handle it. Um, Here's a really weird one. Okay. I don't know what, I, I, I okay, so I may be injecting more drama into this preview than is necessary. Mulan Revelations, four issue miniseries by Mark, by Mark Andreco, art by Micah Kaneshiro. This reads to me like Dark Horse having some passive aggressive payback. Fa Mulan is a Chinese legend, so she can't be copyrighted. But you know that the most dominant version of Mulan is the Disney version starring the magnificent Ming-Na. Isn't if, she is now on the Once Upon a Time TV show? No, she's on... Oh, well, the I character. Mean, the character. Ming-Na is on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, Mulan the is character. on... Yeah, she yeah. is on, on Once Upon a Time. If this book gets some readers by piggybacking off Disney... Well, first of all, too bad for Disney. But wouldn't that be sort of a little, a nice little payback for stealing Star Wars? Well, the other interesting thing that they're doing uh, in that month is Nanjing, the Burning City, which mm. is a graphic novel about the rape of Nanjing. That's heavy. That, that's a that's a very heavy subject. It's by Ethan Young, who's doing art and writing. I don't know who that is, and it's very unusual for Dark Horse to do, you know, straight historical drama. Not even drama, you know. Just Straight historical story. Mm-hmm. Um, Age of Reptiles is getting a new miniseries. It's called uh, what Ancient Egypt. Hmm? I don't know what that is. Age of Reptiles is the Re- Ricardo Delgado's silent dinosaur comics. Basically, stories about dinosaurs in their time. No mm-hmm. words, you know, no one protagonist. Just, you know, 
the BBC's, you know, when dinosaurs rolled oh. here. <laughs> from and Ricardo Delgado started as a great artist. And his recent uh, shorts on Dark Horse Presents were even better. It's very heavily detailed, uh, great world building, so I'm curious. Okay. And uh, Satoshi Kon, the late great uh, manga artist slash anime director, uh, gets his uh, Art of Satoshi Kon hardcover, um, which, okay. again, is a good... Always a good yeah. gesture for someone who is as recognized and as... Celebrate okay. Uh, you have anything from the smaller publishers? Uh, well, I have one item from Boom. Okay. Uh, the Fiction Number One, a miniseries by Kurt Pires and David Rubin. Sounds like I know what you did last summer, crossed with Narnia. So I'm down <laughs> for that. I don't like any of these things. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm interested in in sort of the okay. premise, but you know, like we always say with Boom, it's a roll of the dice because I don't know who this person is. I'm willing to give it a shot. IDW is having an odd, odd month. The first thing is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Casey and April number one. Now, it's a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles miniseries. Uh, IDW has a lot of them right now. They're doing very well with this franchise. The thing is, the writer is Mariko Tomaki, who did this one summer. That oh. And speaking of Ido, we talked about Guan Lin Yang being an odd choice for uh, Superman. Yeah. She's coming in to do Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I don't know, maybe she grew up on that as a kid and is like, yay! Wow! Mariko? I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine, like, what would she... Casey and April, which continuity is this? Are, it's, are the, it's the IDW continuity. They're, yeah, they're like, it's they're not adults, they're like teenage couple here. Wow. Okay, and it's a road trip story. Oh, you're curious. <laughs> now well, I'm curious. Now you might have before, to review like, this because this because one long summer was award winning. This one summer. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. I I should really read that. You know. Yeah. And finally, after a long, long time, IDW is printing Bacchus Omnibus Edition Volume One, 567 pages for mm. just forty dollars. Of the Eddie Campbell uh, long, long lost masterwork. Well, not lost, you know, just out of print. Okay. And, okay, uh, finally, and I should mention it because the solicitation is gloriously insane, Monster Motors by Brian Lynch and Nick Roche. Okay. Listen to that. In Transylvania, Kentucky, genius mechanic Vic Frankenstein and his android assistant Igor battle Cadilicula. An evil vampire car that sucks gas out of other vehicles. Also getting in on the action is Mini Van Helsing, four-wheeled monster hunter. What? Officially what? I'm speechless. <laughs> We're gonna have to review all of these things, you realize that. I don't know where to begin. Um, Nick Rochet, this is some Cars, weirdness, I, I don't know. Nick Roche was the artist for a long time on IDW's Transformers. Okay. He was a pretty good artist. I have no idea who Brian Lynch is, but again, that's just gloriously... The curse of Minivan Helsing. Also featuring Witchcraft Carrier. Wow. <laughs> okay, I think wow. I think we've done enough solicits. We, yeah. We've talked and talked and we haven't reached the reviews, so... Let us begin with the reviews. Then. Uh, uh, what shall we start with? Let's start with Invisible Republic number one. Uh, image book written by Gabriel Hardman, art by Karina Bechko. No, uh, Karina Bechko co-writes Co and Gabriel Hardman does the, the art. art. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, 
you want to introduce? Sure. So, uh, Croger Bab, what a name, is a reporter who has traveled off to a distant colony of Earth, trying to find out what's been going on since the collapse of a recent dictator's regime. This colony, Avalon, is basically on the brink of socioeconomic collapse, but as Bab is wandering around getting the cold shoulder from the inhabitants, he finds a manuscript written by someone who turns out to be the dictator's cousin, a woman that no one has ever heard of. It's a very clever bit of nested narrative. Because Bab doesn't... He's not interested in the story of Arthur McBride, the dictator, because everyone knows him, right? It's sort of taken for granted that this person was this major historical figure, and now he's gone. And what he wants to know is... Why has no one ever heard of this girl, Maya, who was his cousin, and she was with him at the beginning? In other words, there's this whole history that is unfolding both for us as readers and for Bab, even as he's trying to figure out what else is going on. And how her her narrative, her story, ended up being, you know, in the possession of a hobo who's burning pages for warmth. Like, how did it get there? Okay, I have two issues with this issue. Okay. The major one is this. Why is this a science fiction book? It takes place on another planet, mm-hmm. in space, in the far-flung future. Everyone is dressed like it's 2015. People are using and burning paper. Horrible kindling, by the way. It mm-hmm. burns away quickly. And, you know, there's regular old journalists, and, you know, we, we see soldiers with regular old guns. Why doesn't it take place on Earth in some country of whatever, beside the fact that he didn't want to do... I don't know, it unearthed. Why is this a science fiction book? There is nothing about it that makes it any way advanced or different or unique. It's just a story set in imaginary place number 678. Right. I think the implication is that because it's a distant colony, it's far enough away from Earth that no one from Earth knows what's been going on in this place. Now, you're right. This could have been Korea just as easily. Yeah. You take an isolated nation... And, you know, you try to unravel the story that's being told there. Um, it's very low science fiction. You're absolutely it's right. A, but it's not simply like, you know, we've talked about Southern Cross. Southern Cross was low science fiction. You know, mm-hmm. one ship taking months to travel between planets. This is simply, it's science fiction as background excuse because there is nothing about it. That if, if they didn't told me this was another planet, I would say, well, it's a modern day... Story set in some unnamed country. Yeah. That's it. If it's nobody true. told you, you wouldn't know. True enough. If this had been... I mean, the fact that it's... You know, like you have the year, yeah. and you have the location. But if these two things had not been in the comic... Because the comic isn't concerned with science fiction okay. concepts. It's more the issue... In fact, the the um, the addendum at the end of the issue talks about the daughters of Genghis Khan, right? And how... They ruled certain parts of his empire after his death, and then they were overthrown, and their histories were also deleted. So that seems to be the crux of where Hardman and Bechko are going. And see, and that's the other problem. I'm interested in where they are going. I'm not interested in where they are by the end of this issue. Because they have two stories that could be interesting in and of themselves. You know, the journalist... In the post-collapse uh, society mm. and the society before the collapse. You know, the rise of a dictator. As seen through, through someone yeah. else's eyes. But because he has to split these stories over 22 pages and he has to introduce the setting and the characters, 
he doesn't advance any of them to the point where I actually care about it behind, beyond the, okay, this is the concept. I, I could see myself interested in any of these stories if it, if they moved fast enough. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would have worked better as a double issue. Maybe he just needed to trim some things. Maybe the whole, the whole journalist story needed to go away. Because well, I'm, no, I'm, because I, I'm, because I'm, the journalist story is necessary because it emphasizes the fact that what's interesting about Maya's story isn't just the fact that she saw this dictator take over from before when they were completely powerless. It's the fact that when he asks other people, you know, who is this Maya woman? Nobody knows who she is. Yeah. In other words, it's not just the fact that she wrote the story. It's the fact that no one knew what happened to her afterwards. Like, what is her fate? That is the question that I think I'm, uh, I'm, carries I'm, me forward. I'm, I'm it, not, it could go either way. Yeah, but I'm not interested enough by the end of issue one to actually care about it beyond, again, beyond the... The general concept could have been interesting. The actual execution is meh. I'm not I, interested. I, I don't... You know, I don't care about... We meet Maya. We meet her uncle. I, yeah. don't, I don't care about them. We get the, oh, he might be more brutal than what you think of him. But, you know, it's very simple. For a first issue, yes. Yeah. I get, I mean, my, my investment in this series at this point is that I see the potential. Because it could go in very interesting ways. My assumption is that in the following issues, it's, it'll keep up that parallel of he's investigating in the future. And every time he finds a fragment of her story, we go back to that. So that's how these two stories can unfold simultaneously. Whether or not it works out, is very difficult to tell from this issue specifically because you're right, not a lot happens in terms of the overall plot movement. And there, but there, I'm intrigued there, there, there are bits of plot convenience that are real. I mean, he literally bumps into a stack of pages on the street. Yeah. That's huge plot That's, convenience. On the one hand, it's plot convenience, but on the other hand, it's also sort of reinforcing the point that her story is garbage, yeah. right? It, it's, it's just this stack of pages that somebody was burning for, and not even reading, like just tossing it into the fire for, to get warm. So that, you know, look how far this person has fallen in terms of, you know, whether people even recognize her. I, I'm coming back for more, at least for the first arc. I wouldn't commit to like the entire series based on this issue, but I think that Hardman and Bechko do a good enough job of setting up the mystery on, on several different layers, like not only who Maya is, but also the person that we see in her story, right? The, the cousin that she says he's capable of this thing and she didn't even know and he's violent. How does he become a poster on a wall, right? That, that symbolizes, uh, you know, fear and oppression and, and, and all of this. So I, I do sort of, I want to see more of this. Okay. Uh, shall we move on to the next one? Yes. Frankenstein Underground, number one, uh, written by Mac Mignola, art by Ben Sternbeck with colors by Dave Stewart, published by Dark Horse. It's a spin-off slash continuation of the version of the Frankenstein's monster, which was featured in Hellboy, I think Hellboy in Mexico, but I'm not sure. Wh- yes. One of the, one of the Hellboy stories. Mm-hmm. And it's a classic Frankenstein story, which is, he's created, he doesn't want to be created, he's a monster, you know, people are chasing him. Everybody's chasing him, and we flash forward through various hunts to 1952. Six. Six? Six, sorry. And there we actually start the plot, halfway through the issue, where when he meets an old woman and, well, things go wry because new people are chasing him. Yeah. 
Um, it's a very Magnolia book, and if you like, <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, this, it is. <laughs> at this point of his career, Mike Magnolia has a niche, yeah. and if you like him, you like him, and if you don't like him, this will not change your mind either way. Uh, ben Sternberg does a very Magnolia. Again, everybody who does Magnolia's book tends to shape his art around Magnolia's, you know, version, which is fine. Mm-hmm. That's what. That's what Dave Stewart is there, there is for, you know, to fit the colors in, which he does perfectly. If you didn't tell me, I would say, yes, it's a very good Mignola. But the thing is, you know, I'm not a huge Mignola fan. I'm like a distant appreciator of his work, and this doesn't change my mind about it. Okay. I, I didn't like this issue either, but I, w- I will say this to his credit. Mignola nailed the character of Frankenstein's monster. And that's not as easy as it sounds, because there have been so many attempts to sort of appropriate Shelley's character and put him in different contexts and different interpretations. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Showtime's Penny Dreadful. I, I attempted, I, I gave, gave up. Horribly emo, Shakespearean tragedy. Mono, ugh, ugh, and he's not, and he's not Shakespearean. Six in your throat. And he's not Shakespearean, he's Miltonian. Blah. And meanwhile, Karloff's version, right, from the James Whale film is practically mute, and sometimes he's too monstrous, and sometimes he's too nice. And here, I feel like Mignola really gets the monster. Like, this is someone with a conscience, someone who suffers, but he keeps trying to make connections with these people, and he fails because circumstances are against him, not because he's doing something wrong. French people are against him in this issue. You know, I mean, you, what does Mignola has against frogs? I, oh my God, you went there. <laughs> I went there. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. French, I'm sorry. French people and frogs. No, yeah, I mean, so, that's true. I'm sorry. But that said, like acknowledging that that is probably the strongest part of the issue, the fact that he really manages to reconstruct the character as accurately as possible to the original canon. The problem is, and this is a problem that I have always had with Mignola, always going as far back as the beginning of Hellboy. He's a creator who is very much of the tell-don't-show mindset. What happens in this issue? So Frankenstein stumbles into this cave with this old woman who proceeds to monologue about the gods and the spirits and this and that, blah, 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 blah. And then we get it. The next scene cuts to the establishing of the villain, who is, of course, a collector-type villain and goes on and on about, I want that creature for my collection. And it, it, it so much telling. And Mignola is an, is an artist whose style, like you said, his style is iconic. You would think that at some point he would learn to just show us these things instead of giving us 500 word bubbles. Well, he, that, like, he likes his monologues. Yeah, but it's it drags the issue down. Because I, you get I, to the end, and what actually happens here, and this was the point that I just thought was hilarious, right? So you have this fight. And... The agent of the villain is meant to capture Frankenstein and bring him back. And he said, bring him back unharmed. She scratches his cheek. This sends the villain to the eyes said unharmed. And she gets hit by lightning. I mean. That I think works. It's the melodrama of the villain. But it's such poor plotting. It's like the, <clears throat> you're setting up this confrontation with someone who's like a major henchman for the villain. And then I I don't even know. I don't think she's a major And apparently, enemy. like, these characters, this book is, according to the letter pages, I don't know yeah. from experience, but this book is apparently linked to th- not one other work, but three other 
Mineolaverse titles. Well, which because is, all of the Mineolaverse is interconnected. Right. So like Witchfinder and Baltimore and this. So it's, it's, that's, that's <sighs> the problem. These books had to spend so much time fitting in as a piece of the puzzle in the Mignola universe history because, yeah. you know, it's important to him that everything is cohesive and he has this whole history of, of Hellboy's, you know, world from, Basically, from the creation of the universe yeah. up until the end of times. But the more intricate the continuity yeah. gets, the less accessible each new work now, is. Now, it's, e- it's better than, say, something like, you know, the Star Wars extended universe, because it's just... <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's one guy there and... There is no Star Wars extended universe anymore. Wait, wait for it. It's gone. It'll, it'll be back. <laughs> you know, because it's one guy running the show and a couple of people following him. It's, you know... But it's still... By this point, the Mignolaverse is... 20 years old, you have two ongoing series, Hellboy and BPRD, mm-hmm. you have, at every month, at least two other ongoing miniseries. Right. At, at this point, I think they're like... It's the most the dominant b- shared universe at Dark Horse right now, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, other than the Buffy, Angel, Verse, yeah. whatever. But those are just like Yeah, so it's, it, at some point, it be, it's too much. A new reader would have trouble getting into this, yeah. I think. Or a lapsed reader, in my case. Yes. I, mean, I stopped reading Hellboy years ago, so coming into this, I thought... Well, you know, I think like a lot, a like a lot of other, like a lot of of his other stuff, it'll probably work better in trade. I always found that Mignola's tends to work better in you know when I read them in stacks. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm I'm not. Yeah, I'm not not interested enough. Okay. Uh, the last issue, the last number one issue, Giant Days number one by John Ellison and Lisa Trayman. This is from Boombox. Yes, which is a an subsidiary of Boom. Yes. Uh, so, the story here is about, it's a 60 issue miniseries about three girls at college, and, hmm, so there That's was something, it. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's a very, it's a slice of life comic, which I, I do enjoy sometimes, I don't know if you, if you're familiar with the webcomic Bob White. Yeah, yeah, Bob White? Bob White, it's very similar, it's about, like, these three very different, very weird girls. I was about to say, because this is a spin-off from John Ellison's webcomic work, because he does... Oh. Because I, I haven't read all of it, but he does, he did, uh, Bobbins, and then, um, Scary Go Round, and then Bad Machinery, mm. and they're all set together, and the character of Esther is from Scary Go Round. I was not aware of that. See, uh, and okay. I was. Okay, so that's an interesting bit of context. Now, there was something that bothered me about this issue, and it took me a second rereading to realize what it was. The pacing here is completely off. It's a webcomic pacing. Not even that. There's a, it feels like there's a disconnect between every scene. There's a pa- there's no sense of flow between the panels. On one page, so Daisy is knocking on Susan's door trying to get her to come outside. And on that same page, suddenly Susan is coming into Daisy's room and Daisy's scre- like in front of a screen, okay. screaming, get away, get okay. away. So here's the thing. The, these three, uh, girls, uh, we have, mm-hmm. sorry, we have, uh, Esther, who's like the super dramatic goth. Mm-hmm. We have, uh, Susan, who's like the naive and nerdy type, and we have the straight man, woman. Daisy. Daisy, yeah. No, Daisy is no, the... No, sorry, uh, Daisy is the nerdy one, Susan is the straight, yeah. is the straight woman. And at the start of it, you think, okay, it's like Slice of Life comic, which is fine. But then, by page two, <laughs> you have short flashbacks to nearly supernatural events which happened, and then I think, okay, it's like Lumberjanes in college. That was exactly where my head went to. So I'm like, okay, it's going to be like that. Fine. And then, after that, the plot of the issue suddenly becomes they're having a bet with Esther that she can't have three days without drama. 
I mean, this... It's like, okay, so now it's a comedic hygiene series? For all that the pace is off, was that not funny, though? Like, when yeah. they want to prove that Esther's a drama queen, Susan gives her a blank sheet of paper and tells her to hold on to it. Three seconds later, she turns back, and Esther turns it into a paper chain that reads Doom. Yes. I mean, okay. that's perfect. Okay. That's funny. And then, and I'm thinking, okay, so this will be the main plot of the issue. Then they introduce Susan's ex-boyfriend, and it becomes a straight drama about relations. And I'm like... Well, what, are you, what, what story are you telling? You're telling like four different stories at the same issue and they don't really stand up together. I kind of disagree there because I think that whatever her relationship with this new character who's introduced McGraw, it is humorous because, for example, yeah. the first thing that Susan says, uh, she bumps into a bunch of friends and, you know, all of a sudden McGraw is revealed and their eyes lock and, you know, yeah. there's all this past that we don't know about. But the first thing Susan says when she comes back is, don't ever tell your friend to hide my enemies in his hair because his stupid hair. Because he, he because the um, the other character had sort of like this afro that was blocking the view of McGraw. Now, okay, so and, and here's the that's f- funny. Yeah. And then later on, um, the way that she gets him is basically to weaponize Esther's drama and set off a chain of events that ends with him getting food tossed on his head. Okay, so so, so here's the thing. I think the plotting isn't very good, but. It's still a good book because it has charm yes. in spades. This book oozes charm and loveliness. There, mm-hmm. there is no other word. Maybe it's because, again, Lisa Tremaine's art, beautiful. Yes. It's like, it's lush and it's warm and it, you just want to, you know, you just want to stare at it. It's, it makes you feel good inside looking, yeah. looking at the damn pages. It's true. And, and again, and the, the dialogue, humor is on point. Yeah, and the dialogue is funny. And the short cartoon, it's like, you know, one character is annoyed and she's walking away and there's a cloud over her head. Yeah. And it's, it's slight, just enough. And I think the reason this works for me so much more than Lumberjanes did is because, like, thinking back, really the problem that I had with Lumberjanes was the fact of, you know, the characterization was very shallow. And here I feel like even in the context of 22 pages, I get enough of a sense of Esther, Susan, and Daisy. Yes, they're types. Well, but they but basically tell twist. you by first by the first page, like, hello, this is the the the, the drama queen. This is the nerdy one. Yeah, this but on the, the other hand, one. for example, the nerdy one, turns out that she gets aroused by napkin folding videos. Which, you know, it's the sort of detail that, huh... It, it, it always, and you know, for all that Susan is supposedly that, like, that, that's also the thing. The intro is like, it's misleading in a sense because Susan's supposed to be the straight woman, but then she's the one who gets completely consumed she, by she her. She thinks she's the straight one. Yeah. Woman, and Esther, not. for all that she's the drama queen, she doesn't cause the sort of hilarious, uh, a pileup of events. That happened towards the climax of the first issue. That's just, that's Susan taking advantage of her drama field. Yeah. So there is sort of a, um. It's a very good, it's a very good comic. I think it could have been better if it was better planned, better. Yeah. Like there is that sense of disconnect between every scene, which now that you're telling me that he, cause I was sort of familiar with Bobbins, but I've never read it. Like I don't know that. Yeah. It's a very, again, John Ellison's work in webcomic is long, long running. It's like a whole universe that has been published continuously for like 10 years now or so. Right. Ridiculous. So, but I'm here for the duration uh, one of the miniseries, that's about, for sure. One thing I'm curious about, what is the time period for this? Is this is this modern day? It's, it's, it's contemporary. Because it could be, but then again, th- that mustache. Not even a hipster <laughs> would wear that. Not, not even a hipster would wear a McGraw mustache. To paraphrase, no one ever went because estimating uh, because I think the, the same characters, characters Esther. I think 
was shown as a younger woman and in a book that took place in the midnight. It's again, be, because I know the webcomic slightly, but not enough to actually know the situation. I get confused. I think if you don't mm-hmm. know it, like you, you're fine. Yeah. I went in blank and, and as and far if, as I'm concerned, she is. Yeah. Just this once. Yes, it's now. So that raises the question if the, the recaps that we have on the second page, right? They're like, oh, by the way, we punched out yeah. these Negroes. Are those references to events in the webcomic? I assume so. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Because the, I think the webcomic characters were originally school age. Uh, right. Teenagers, not college women. I'll do some research on this. Okay. I mean, this is sort of it's, thing, cu- it's curious. Based on, on this issue, it would be interesting to see how... He builds up to it, but I think that I would wait until Giant Days is over and until I've read the entire thing and then go back because I wouldn't want yeah. that to color my opinion. And whatever it, what, however it ends, Lissus Remain is spectacular. Yes. I, Absolutely. I look forward to her next work. Uh, shall we end with a trade slash, you know? Sure. Well, well, it's not a trade. It's a, okay. So there will be a trade. There will eventually more than one, actually. Yeah. What we decided to do this time was. Uh, since all new Ghost Rider has been cancelled at issue 12, uh, we decided why not review the run? Because he does represent sort of a new, an attempt at a new character in similar vein to Miss Marvel and, uh, other characters that Ultimate Spider-Man. So we thought, why not take a look at the whole thing and, and try to figure out what happened over there? So, uh, all new Ghost Rider, written by Felipe Smith. Art by Treadmore for the first five issue. Then Damien Scott, then Philippa Smith. No, yes. Val Staples did the art for the last one. Uh, Philippa Smith and Val Staples together. Okay. Okay. So, already, I mean, this is something that we have to point out. Twelve issues. Robbie, the protagonist, gets a redesign every single arc. <laughs> so that might definitely come to Okay, so what's, what's it about? Okay, so, before we talk about what it's about, I just want to preface this by saying... So Ghost Rider is a character that I've always given a wide berth, never found him particularly interesting, whether it was Johnny Blaze or Danny Ketch, or even the 2099 version was not fantastic. All that Zarathos nonsense, I don't, I don't even know. And the movies did him no favors. I actually, I, I went and I tried to watch the first uh, Ghost Rider movie just to sort of get in the- fool, I warned you! Why, why didn't I listen? Why didn't I listen? I mean, Nicolas Cage, really? But anyway. None of that worked out. In fact, I was so out of touch, I didn't even realize that there had been another new Ghost Rider beforehand launched out of Fear Itself by Rob Williams. Were yeah. you aware of that? Uh, there was a female Ghost Rider in Jason Aaron. That's her. Yeah. And, it, and she it disappeared only... without... She just appeared and then disappeared and never heard of her again. Williams' series apparently only lasted nine issues, which probably should have been a big warning sign to me. And now here we are with another Ghost Rider. He drives a car instead of a bike and he's Latino. I gave this one a try just on a whim. I wasn't expecting anything, and I enjoyed it at first. Now, okay, so you have to acknowledge that to begin a new Ghost Rider, obviously that means introducing a new character. And I'll say this much. On some level, Smith's construction of Robbie Reyes as a character is formulaic, right? He's this noble kid from the ghetto. From the, the, the barrio, as it were, with an autistic younger brother, and of course the brother is adorable, and he's the emotional anchor for Robbie to keep going. But I think the fact that it's formulaic here doesn't change the fact that it works. 
There's a scene in issue number one where Robbie's taking a beating from some punks to, to protect his brother. And on the way back, you know, his brother's saying, you're my hero. And there are tears in his eyes. And you feel that moment. You know, it's an emotional moment for him. At the end of that issue, he has sort of this nightmare scenario of what would happen if he got arrested and leaving his brother alone in the dark. And, and uh, Tradmore's art really, you know, the little boy all alone in this big dark room. You feel these moments even if they're, you know, color by numbers. Yeah, and then he gets contacted by um, the, an evil ghost mm-hmm. called Ellie Merrow who turns him into, not the Ghost Rider, well, into a blazing skull demon without a name. Yes. And in fact, you know, that might be part of the appeal for me here. The fact that it's disconnected from the previous lore. There's no Mephisto here. Yeah. There's no Black Heart, no Spirits of Vengeance, all of this. S- some spirit that calls itself Eli Morrow possesses Robbie after he's shot and, and killed by these paramilitary drug, uh, drug dealers. Drug dealers. And brings him back to life as, well, a tool. A tool, you know, a tool to, 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 for vengeance. Yes. Now, there was another, there's something else that interested me here. I mean, there, there are so many things that Smith is playing with here and that these are the reasons why I was so into it at the end of the first arc. For example, something that interests me as a reader. So I love the idea of playing with legacy and playing with inheritance. One of the things that I always enjoyed most about Heinberg's Young Avengers was the fact that they were legacy heroes, but the wrong legacy. So, for example, the Asgardian was the son of the Scarlet Witch. Hulkling was not a Hulk. Patriot was not Bucky. Like, they had assumed the identities of legacy characters that were not who they actually were. So it's playing with all of that concept and and uh, the idea of... Uh, who else did this? I know that somebody else did this, but anyway, never mind. So... The idea that Robbie well, the doesn't that Rania know. Rania being transformed into Spider Girl basically because everybody kept calling her Spider Girl. Right. She so was she like, figured she, she, she was like, it's not my name. And everybody's like, but you are Spider Girl. She's like, fine. She just accepted it. Yes. And here, for example, what happens, um, the, fr- the villain of the series is Mr. Hyde. Yeah. Now, the first time that Robbie confronts Mr. Hyde as Ghost Rider, Hyde thinks that he's Johnny Blaze. He says, what are you, you again, why do I have to deal with you? And Robbie has no idea what he's talking about. He doesn't know that he's Ghost Rider. He doesn't even know what a Ghost Rider is. Exactly. So that I found very interesting. Like, it was a very good way to sort of establish his character. And then in the second arc, Johnny Blaze turns up. That might have been a misstep. I th- no, I think there have been a lot of missteps because... Okay, I have I had several problems with the series. Okay. Originally, I've only read the first issue, thought it was okay, and never continued. Impo- interesting to note, it came at the same time of Miss Marvel, and it was almost like a distaffed counterpart to Miss Marvel, which is because Miss Marvel at the first issue was almost like this is like the girl series because she's into fan fiction and she's all about uh, you know being together and friendship almost, and this was the Tough guy from the Barrows, and he's into cars and riding and action. It was oh, it was presented like that. I'm not saying that what it was. It was presented like that. It could and, be interpreted as and that, I guess. in both of these cases, I didn't really like the first issues because the first issues were very slow and very formulaic. 
Miss Marvel took its time before it reaches its peaks, mm-hmm. and Ghost Rider, well, it did it a bit faster, but the first issue wasn't it. Now we reach the bigger problems. The art. Uh, yeah. Okay, the series starts with Treadmore, great artist. He did uh, Luther Strode, and he mm-hmm. did one issue of Zero, one of the better issues of Zero, and that's a series that always looks good. And the first three issues are in his classic, uh, fast-forward, action-y, brutal style. He's and he's almost perfect for a Ghost Rider character, but then issue four and five came out, and I'm what? What? It was very hard to understand. It was, what was incomprehensible happening. half the time, and I think that he got the layoff announcement, or maybe uh, his partner on Luther's Road said, "Good news, we can do the third Luther's Road meeting, which is coming out right now. You can leave this Marvel book." And he was like, "Well, I'm contractually obligated to do another two issues, whatever's sketching across the page." I, when he, he when he has, for example, Grumpy, the the gangster who overdoses yeah. on Hyde's pills, and also when Hyde overdoses, and they have like these monstrous, bizarre forms that show up. It is interesting on the one hand, but on the other hand, whenever there are fight scenes, it's so hard to figure out what's happening. Like yeah. who who just moved? Their bodies flying everywhere, and you don't know what's happening. It's too expressive. It's way too expressive mm-hmm. and over the top for its own good. Almost abstract, I'd say. Like the, the yeah. cartoonishness of it gets to a certain point, and I mean, it's still Ghost Rider. Yeah, for all that it's well, Ghost Rider has always been about a book about exes, you know. It's about a guy with a blazing skull yeah, who, who but, beats people to death with a chain. But when he beats people to death with a chain, the art is usually designed in such a way that you see it very yeah. clearly. And here it was very, you know. Very and confusing. Damien Scott that followed was okayish, but still problematic with the storytelling. The last two issues were bad, were better. Yes, in my opinion, Although, again, and like they, re- they redesigned. Robbie, like, he has different hairstyles and different looks. and Like, three different arts, okay. three different looks. Okay, now, the arts, one thing. The other thing I had with the characters, because mm-hmm. Robbie is okay, a generic good kid in tough neighborhood, whatever. Eli Mero is the problem, because he's supposed to be the... He starts as a, yeah. okay, I'm your silent partner, and then, you know, slight spoilers, he became this tempter character, like, mm-hmm. you should go over to the dark side and kill more people. Yeah. And he's an awful tempter. He's the worst version of... The taunting you to become your darker self villain I've ever seen. He always has this annoying laugh, and I'm sorry, it's very hard to do the ha 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 on the comic unless right. you have a very good letter, and here it's just simply every other sentence like ha ha ha. Yeah. That doesn't work. Or when he refers to himself several times as the satanic serial killer. Yeah. I cannot take you seriously. I, it, it might have been a you're little a over joke. the top. It's, it's not this... a little over the top. That went over the rails. Into the cliffside and crashed and burned. Yeah. That poor car. I, I think that what happened here is that uh, my guess would be that Smith knew the book was being canceled at 12 yeah. after the first arc because everything starts getting compressed. So oh, yeah. Johnny Blaze turns up, for example, and there's this really funny scene, like when they first meet, Blaze is trying to figure out, you know, how he became a ghostwriter. So we asked Robbie, did you make any deals with the devil? And Robbie says, that's the dumbest thing ever. Who would do that? And Johnny's just staring at him like, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's funny. That's the yeah, sort of yeah. thing that I wish there had been a little bit more of. And then when you get to the the sort of revelation of who Eli Morrow is, because... Several revelations. It's a, it's a mystery that starts out, and it, like I wish that there had been 20 or 30 issues, because you could have... Smith could have played with it. It could have been like, you know, who is this person? Ghost... Like, the original Ghost Rider is telling you it's not a spirit of vengeance. There's something else going on here, and I don't know what it is, but you need to be careful. 
And then it, the sort of like revelations, because there's no room left. The last two issues are one after the other, and there's no time to process. The any last of two it. issues are massive plotting because he has to. Yeah. They had to show all all of these things that he obviously planned for at least ten issues in two issues. Yeah. So I suddenly mean, Dave he goes through this transformation that doesn't. Suddenly, his cute little brother is a bratty teenager in yeah. like one issue. And he has a girlfriend that he loses, again, in one issue. She, you know, the, the crazy thing here is, I didn't know who did, like, where the hell did this girl come from? So I went back and I reread again. She actually does appear in the first arc for one panel. When he shaves his head, she's the one who says, why do they always have to shave his head? He was so cute before. And his school teacher, which we were supposed to think was a major character, disappears. disappears. And I'm like, okay, is he, you know, there's something going on with him. But no, everything just goes completely already. Yeah. And even if we ignore that, even if we say, even if I give Philippus Smith the benefit of the doubt, which I do, because he obviously was forced to chop out early, it's still a bit of a mess. The it's, ending is... I mean, and, no, not Issue just, 11? Not just the ending. Everything about it is a bit of a mess. It's It knows what he wants to do, but what he wants to do isn't very interesting, because the temptation isn't interesting. Roby is kind of generic, and, you know, the, your first villain is Mr. Hyde, fine as a starter villain, but then your next villain is, like, generic gangster guy number 567. No, but, well, see, this, here's the, the, the crux of it, is that it's not clear from the moment, the moment Smith has to, like, compromise his overall plan, everything collapses, because Mr. Hyde is a villain of the first arc, they lock him up, and yet he turns up in the next arc as the, the villain behind the villain. Yes. The, the blue crew and all of that. Uh, issue 11, Gabe has been sort of either possessed or communicated by Eli Morrow, and he jumps out of an office building, and in the next issue, he's home like nothing happened. What? What is well, going well, on no, no, no. here? That, you know, that, like, that there's I no... actually like, because... What was that? I, I think what we were supposed to understand is that his he did the pact by... He jumping. died? No, he... Well, maybe he died, but whatever. He believed Eli. He took Eli at his word, and then okay. Eli gave him his power. Eli gave him powers. But then... The no, question because be- he jumps... He convinces Gabe to jump out a window by telling him you're going to be a superhero. Oh, yes. We don't see Gabe hit the ground. We don't see anything that... The next time we see Gabe, he's at home, and he has already been completely possessed by Eli. Yeah. Despite the fact that Robbie still has the power of Ghost Rider, which is completely unclear to me. Like, how do you... Yeah, does Eli... Can Eli has a limited number of, you know, superheroes he can create... Does he, it's only, you know, members of the Reyes bloodline or whatever? It, it does not make any sense. Yeah, whatsoever. the fantasy aspect of your universe are right. screwed. Because originally it made sense. Like, okay, Morrow had been killed in the car, like yeah. the Ghost Rider's car, and Robbie dies in proximity to the car, so he gets possessed. That's fine. You know, that's, yeah. that's right. And, but then once the thing with Gabe starts coming in, and then of course, you know, the revelation about who Elon Morrow actually is, Satanic serial killer Eli Morrow who pushed the pregnant woman down the stairs. <laughs> I mean, of course he did. I mean, it is... Team Ro- if this was a cartoon, Team Roth would do the dubbing for this guy. Subtlety would have gone so much further. I mean, it, it's possible. Like, Morrow's... Because, before they actually get into, like, who Eli Morrow was, he's genuinely disturbing. Because he doesn't say, I'm a satanic serial killer. He's just like, what? You know, you should just kill that guy. Yeah. What, what for, you know, for great justice. You're angry. Should, yeah, you know, kill him. For great him, justice, not? murder him, defend your neighborhood. Bro. He doesn't even mind at first that, that Robbie is saving his brother. Yeah. He's like, you know, yeah, sure, sweet kid. I like, he, there's, there's this very ominous scene when they're driving in the car and Gabe is eating ice cream and Eli says in the, in the narrative box, he's like, 
I like that kid. So you, you know, it starts off being vague and he's more threatening because of it. Once they get into like the deep psychosis of who Eli Morrow is, I'm like, there's nowhere you can go with that. And you have to ask yourself, Johnny Blaze know this. And he just tells the kid, well, you know, you have to control your powers. Goodbye. No, what Johnny Blaze says is that he doesn't know who's in there because yeah, yeah, but- jo- Johnny Blaze's power is that the penance there, yeah. right? Like he looks at you and you feel the pain of your victims. But when he does it to Robbie, he detects that there are two human souls in there, which is not what happened with every other ghostwriter. Yeah, but at one point, Johnny Blaze gave him the lecture of, you know, you have to believe in yourself and channel your anger. Yeah. And then by the end, that's end of issue 10. And then the next arc, the last arc starts and Johnny Blaze goes away, leaving behind a confused kid with his little brother in possessed by a, a vicious evil spirit. Why did he go? What, well, what, what he, was so necessary that Johnny Blaze had to leave and not... Well, there's a year, there's a, a, a year later sort of jump there. The, well, the, yeah. Issue 11 begins 10 months, months later. later. And it's like, well, but that was the time we needed to see. Uh, what, and again, like, I w- what I know, think the, I wanted here was more like... issues, you could have gone back afterwards. Yeah, you remember uh, Blue Beetle? The, yes. Um, Jamie Reyes, Blue Beetle, Mm -hmm. they brought in Peacemaker, the older uh, DC character, as a sort of a mentor. And Johnny Blaze could have worked in that role, especially because Robbie Reyes doesn't have a family. Instead, they bring him in as a callback to like, oh, remember the the other ghostwriter? And then he leaves, and it doesn't make sense plot-wise because he leaves this loaded gun in the middle of a neighborhood, which is about... Which is what Robbie Reyes is. But I think a, a, a large part of the appeal of these new characters, I mean, Kamala Khan doesn't have a mentor either. Yeah, but you can't bring, so, but if you bring it in, you can't bring him in and then say, well, he went not? away. Wolverine sh- shows up in issue six. Medusa is hanging around. Well, right? yeah, Lockjaw turns up. See, but, but they he, do hang around. She's not her mentor. Well, she doesn't stand there and she say. She doesn't know that Lockjaw is her mentor, but that's what he thinks is and that's what Medusa thinks he is. Well, you know, I mean, again, with Lockjaw, he doesn't communicate with her. So, and, and I mean, here, for example, keeping Johnny Blaze around, this is, I mean, going back to Aaron, right? This is exactly the problem I have with Thor. If you have the new character, but the old character is circling around, you know, constantly making their presence known, it's harder to establish the new one. And I mean, that that's problematic for a character as high profile as Thor. When you're dealing with Ghost Rider... Who, and I mean, Paul O'Brien said this, you know, Ghost Rider belongs to one of those levels or, or tiers of Marvel characters that have never been able to hold a solo book. He's like Iron Fist and Moon Knight and Shang-Chi. It doesn't not matter since, what you do with the them. the mid-80s, yeah. Yeah, and even then, no, I mean, no, mid-80s the, wasn't the, the height of their no, success because either. The, no, because the Danny Catch book lasted like 100 issues or so. Huge success. Everything lasted 100 issues back yeah. then, then. Yeah, but... You know, I mean, yeah... So it's very difficult. You have to bring him back and bring him back. And why? So when they're C-list already, but that's exactly what I'm saying. Like yeah. When they're already C-list and you're starting with a new character, the last thing you want is the old character hovering around. This, I'm, I'm convinced that this is why Carol Danvers hasn't turned up in this Marvel. Yeah. You know, this is a character that Kamala and, worships, but you don't want her there telling why, you this is what you have to do. And why Sam Alexander hasn't met the old Nova. Right. Well... I think the old Nova is dead, so maybe that's... Or why, like, I mean, Miles Morales has met Peter Parker, yeah. but because these, up until yeah. now at least, have been, like, universal events or crossovers or whatever, it hasn't been a situation where they're working together for... Yeah, I'm just... I don't have a problem with it as a thing, you know, not showing... Not introducing Johnny Blaze. I'm just saying, plot the plot mechanics, once it's been introduced, and he knows what's going on, I can't buy him leaving the scene. 
It's like if Spider-Man met Miles Morales at the Spider-Man crossover, mm-hmm. and, you know, he learned that, I don't know, Miles Morales has a genetic disorder that will turn him into a giant evil spider that will eat people. Okay. And then he just, well, you have to control yourself, kid. Goodbye. I, I, you can't, I, you, I can't accept it. Right. I it's think like, the issue there was it's that like they either, were... either, either they shouldn't have brought it up. It's like, he shouldn't have said, well, there's something evil within you. I just, I don't know what's within you. Well, there's Goodbye, something kid. evil, I mean, yeah, but once he knows that there's something he's wrong... He's a ghost rider. Yeah, but what... You know, that's what it is. Well, he's not... A- the, the thing that, that Johnny doesn't understand is how there can be two humans as opposed to a human yeah. and a demon. But, you know, that speech that he gives him about you have to not let the demon, you know, take over, don't feed it, whatever, that's true for him, that's true for Danny Ketch, it's true for all ghost riders, that's always been the case. So, like, the advice is generic but appropriate to the character. It's just that, I mean, who wanted Johnny Blaze back? Because, uh, <laughs> like, Robbie is, you know, generic, but he's still sympathetic. Well, he's better, he's better than Johnny Blaze, yes. Yeah, I mean, he's less know, generic than Johnny Blaze. Well, all of his, his concerns are completely down to earth. I mean, I, I read the issues that sort of debut, uh, Johnny Blaze. It's like, he's a stunt man driving on a thing. In the circus. I don't need, I mean, how do you relate to someone like that? Introducing Crash Simpson. Yeah, and so, I mean, the strip, the strength of this run, as it stands, is, I think, in introducing the character. I I might be more forgiving towards the fact that it falls apart at the end because it was canceled. And, you know, this is the reason that I'm reading Ghost Racers. I, 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 like, I, I want more Robbie Reyes. I, I just don't know. Like, I would want to see him in a longer series where he has a chance to I, develop further. I can't recommend this. I think it, it was, as best, at best, okay-ish. And at worst, again, that's the art's fault and the editor's fault, incomprehensible. I had, I had eye hopes for it when it came out because I didn't know Philippe Smith. I like Tread more. I, as any 13-year-old boy on the inside knows, you know, Ghost Rider is cool, if nothing else. It's a striking visual. Yeah. Um, there's something of the heavy metal child in me that loves him forever. But, eh, it, it was just an eh book. I I would recommend the first arc at the very least. Um, the rest of the series, again, like if you can get into that more forgiving mindset because of the circumstances, you might be able to take some fun out of it. I just hope that unlike Aaron's Ghost Rider, this one sticks around because it would be a shame to. Well, Thorcore versus, uh, you know, the ghost, the ghost racers. <laughs> it's obviously going to go there. Sure. Cause they're cops and, you know, pull it over for illegal speeding. <laughs> Why not? You were going, thou hast gone 120 miles over thine limit. 666 miles per hour. <sighs> well, that was that. And I was Tom Shapiro. And I'm Sean Edry. And this was the Smorgasbord. Bon appetit. <laughs>